Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Hey there, listener. What lies ahead is episode 249. Thanks for being here. That means it's part two of our discussion with Duncan Sparrow. But before we go forward, let's go back. In part one of our discussion with Duncan in episode 248, we talked about how he got into programming and software engineering in the early days of computers. Duncan worked in research and development at a place called Bell Labs, often referred to as the Idea Factory, which later became AT&T. We talked with him about what that experience was like working in R&D, how innovation happens, and how he worked in an organization called the Ampersand that sat between research and development. Duncan also told us about his work with cybersecurity standards and how anyone can get involved, and we talked about different types of roles inside cybersecurity. Definitely a great one to go back and listen to if you missed it. This week, in part two of our discussion with Duncan, we're going to get into how he progressed into people management. What was that like? He's going to tell us about some of the hard things that it entails that we need to remember if we're going to consider that as a possible path for our own career. But Duncan didn't stay a manager forever, so you'll get to hear how he boomeranged back to an individual contributor and a little bit about how he evaluated career moves and decisions. We talk a lot about influencing people without authority, but if you listen to last week's episode, even though we talked about cybersecurity, we never asked how Duncan got into cybersecurity in the first place. In this discussion, you're going to get to hear that story, and I'll give you a teaser. It has to do with information warfare. And the last thing I want to point out is we will talk about technology hype cycles and technology waves. Where do you need to be on the hype curve that would be the best for your career? Let's get all those answers and more as we take you into part two of our discussion with Duncan Sparrow. I actually would like to interject and ask about the progression path to that leadership position you just spoke about, you know, being the ampersand between the R and the D, because we heard about your story as a developer a little bit. And a lot of people are on the decision tree fence of, do I continue to progress as a top tier individual contributor and look for a technical career path at my company or somewhere else? Or do I go into management? So I guess my question is this, when you described climbing the ladder earlier, does that mean to you pursuing people management or just advancing your career in some way? And then how did your progression into leadership management come to be? 
Excellent question. The answer is both because I actually went back and forth between the two. So I, I, I went up both the tech ladder and the management ladder. Fairly early in my career, I got promoted to be uh, a lead engineer and then promoted to be a, uh, which was the same, they didn't change your title, but you got to have more responsibility and get paid more. And then into actual management where I had to do performance reviews and, and real people management. And again, very fortunate in, in where I got to do that was sort of, in my view, the ideal way to, to learn to do it, which was um, you're half an individual contributor and half a manager. In other words, you still had to do some individual contributor work and your group was small enough that you could do that. Back then, the rule used to be five to seven people in your group. Now it's like you got 20 to 30 people working for you and they're all one level below you. Then you're spending your whole time doing uh, management. You're not doing any individual contributors. So I, I have my foot in both worlds, w- which was good. Got involved in bigger and bigger projects. Um, there is the whole direct reports versus indirect reports, people reporting through you. And there's also the uh, influence without uh, authority issue of you can have a much larger group than you have on an org chart. Um, I, I would argue if you want to succeed, where you can measure success sort of by any metric you want, but uh, any metric that I can think of, uh, if you want to succeed, you want to have some ability to influence without authority. And to do that, you need to have things like credibility and integrity and trust with your coworkers, trust with your subordinates, trust with your management. And and it is a balancing act to to do all of that. And it is one of these, you know, it only takes one screw up to wipe out 10, you know, did great. So you really have to be persistent in it. You 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 can't just have a bad day and that'll come back to bite you. I guess I'm a naturally fairly optimistic and nice person. So, um, but I do know people that that did single incidents did hurt their career. Just sometimes at the wrong time, being a jerk is just the wrong time to be a jerk. So I would I would argue that even though I'll say movies and everything else and things you read in the paper tend to seem to think like jerks get rewarded, that has not been my experience. So I don't know if I answered your question. Reanswer your question. Yeah, you answered some of it. Absolutely. I would like to know, did you pursue that role that was what I'm hearing is more of a player coach, partial individual contributor, yeah. partial people manager? Did you ask for that or did someone encourage you or say, hey, Duncan, you're doing this? More encouraged me to do it. And they you know, sort of felt me out for it. And then uh, when an opening came up, they'll say pushed me in <laughs> would be the right word. Um, and so that was good. And some of my other, some of my other career moves were similar. Um, I do think if you want to progress, you have to, you have to both look up and look down, look up in that you have to recognize the objectives of your management and what they're trying to do and how can you help your boss do their job better. But you can't do that at the expense of your coworkers or the, or the people who work for you. And so some advice I got, I'll say mid career was, Hey, Duncan, you got to decide if you want to go you know, a lot further, you got to spend a lot more time looking up. And I made a conscious decision to not do that. I mean, I had a very successful career, right? You know, I ended up as a fourth level manager, but I, at least in theory, could have went a lot higher if I would have spent more time, you know, focusing on uh, what upper management needed. But I spent a lot of time focusing on what the people who work for me needed and keeping them happy and and sort of being that, you know, middle point in the hourglass um, that you got to, you know, keep everybody happy underneath you and everybody happy under above you, which which means you're the lever that gets bent all the time. But that's just, you know, that's what I liked doing and, and enjoyed. And I like making the employees that work for me happy and help out where needed. And the whole 
direct versus delegate versus empower once once you are a manager. And again, even the influential authority, even before you're a manager, you have to look at when something needs to get done, somebody's got to do it. And it isn't always you that's doing it. So one thing you got to learn is it's not always you that's doing it. And play to your strengths, get others to help where where you're not as strong, get others to help where they are strong, even if you're strong there too, because they can. And get others to help because they could use, you know, training in that area. They could use the experience in that area. You know, sometimes you got to direct somebody how to do it because they don't know how to do it, but you're training them how to do it. You know, the whole better to teach someone how to fish than it is to fish for them. You get a force multiplier there. If your sole objective is career progression, my sole objective was always to have fun and enjoy what I was doing. And I happened to get a very successful career from doing that. But if, if your objective is to have a successful career, you need to learn how to do that because, again, it's not going to be all you. And people notice when you're a force multiplier for other people. And people notice when you're the opposite of a force multiplier for other people. People notice that even quicker. <laughs> so, so those are important things to, to look at it from the big picture perspective, look at it from the organization's perspective. Is the organization better off because I'm doing this? Or is all of a sudden none of the organization's not as good off? And one thing someone else told me early in my career that I that I really latched on to, it sort of came about from, you know, the sort of standard joke is everybody makes a room happy, some by entering, some by leaving. The, the sort of equivalent in management is you can learn something from everybody. Some are behaviors to emulate, some are things not to do. You need to look at that. And we probably see examples of the what good looks like and what not so good looks like every single day in in any interaction <laughs> that we have. And and people think it's not noticed. And and the problem is the wheels move slowly in all these areas. So it, first of all, it's more noticed than you think it is. <laughs> and again, you don't know what other people are getting for raises and what they're getting told in their performance reviews. They might be getting the very feedback you wish they were getting and they're just ignoring it. That's possible too performance reviews tend to not be as quick as they could be. And particularly bad news, if when you are a manager and you have to actually do these things, you'll you'll recognize that it, it, it's not fun to lay, I've had to fire people, I've had to lay people off. It's not a fun thing to do. Best for the business. And in most cases, it's actually best for the individual too, but it's certainly isn't fun at the time. And it's hard. So it's not like you sit down and go, yeah, I feel like laying off 10 people today. That's just not I was a manager when both the splits occurred within AT&T and both times I had to take my team and say, you know, I got given some basically set of rules of, you know, so many people have to leave your org and go to the other org. You know, you're, you're going to one org and you're bringing so many people with you and so many people are not going to your org. And, and it's a sort of really complex thing because it's at multiple levels. Your boss may or, you know, you might be going one way and your boss is going a different way that they had to decide. And you just, you give your desires, but you know, you can't always meet them. Your group gives you their desires and you usually can't meet them and you got to juggle what's best for the, for the businesses. Those are, those are not fun things to do. And so people don't like doing things that aren't fun to do. So it's, you know, bad performance feedback doesn't get given as often as it should because it's hard to do. I have not had fun doing it and not been easy to do, but I have done it again, probably not as promptly or as quickly as I should have, but it does get recognized. It just is slower, particularly when it's bad stuff. And did you feel when you had to do these difficult things or be in these uncomfortable situations, did you receive training and support within the organization on how to go about that when you were learning how to do it? Because it's not like if you're an individual contributor and you step up to even player coach, you probably don't know what to do. 
No, what again, my career, and I don't think it's too different than most people. You sort of have to emulate the behavior before they give you the new position, then they give you the new position and you're in it for a while, and then they train you how to do it. And that isn't necessarily a bad way to do it. It seems to be you know, working, then you'd think that, no, you should go to the training. The problem is if you go to the training and you haven't had the experience, it doesn't sink in. Okay. Where, whereas, yeah, I made that mistake. <laughs> I get that now. It's, you know, the whole doctor training, they throw you in the emergency room. You say, why do they, you know, make doctors stay up 24 hours a day uh, as part of their doctor training? It's because they're going to make mistakes and they got to learn to live with the mistakes they made. And some of that at least in my early career, was, was similar. Again, Bell Laboratories was a great place to do all this because it was really into, into training. And, and once I had been a supervisor for a year, I went off to very good you know, managerial courses that benefited me at multiple levels of management later because they did that. But yeah, it's, it's a tough trade-off because, again, you got to emulate it before they'll give it to you. You got to do it for a while. Then after the fact, you got to train. So you do have to, you know, I always read a lot. I, I do happen to be fairly good at most book learning. So I, again, I'm old. So, you know, literally the mythical man month came out as sort of a new book when, when I was an early manager and I was like, oh, I'll read that and, and you know, learn stuff like that. And, and again, management theory has come a long way as well. Of course, pressures on management are much greater now than they, at least in my opinion, than they were. The pace just keeps increasing. AT&T used to have, I'm trying to see if I remember this correctly, the System Center for Technical Education? Yeah, they changed the name all the time. It had, it had full big training centers. Again, when you got a million people, you got a lot of people to train, even when it split up and got into its smaller, you know, even now at its paltry 300,000 person state, it's still, still really big. Look, look at it from, again, the big picture of the business viewpoint. They got all this resource, how to best utilize it. How to best utilize it is to train it well. So it, it's sort of worth it to do that. And and we used to have training budgets and we'd always argue they were too small and then half the time not even figure out how to spend them all because we again had to keep doing our day jobs. It's not like, it's not like your day job goes away when you have to do all this other stuff. So it just gets added on top. But you figure out how to do it. And that and some of it is, you know, school hard lock knock. Some of it you do just have to learn by experience. But you get the experience again, you don't have to be the manager to get the experience at doing some of this. Particularly I'm I'm a big advocate of of influence without authority you should be able to yeah that influence without authority is, is such a an interesting skill to have not have the role power it's usually knowing what you're talking about and not being a jerk and and then people respect your opinion sometimes it's you know funny letters after your name whatever uh, you guys actually haven't asked me how i actually got involved in cybersecurity to begin with but um i Got involved with it very early and happened to be somewhat of an expert within AT&T. And sort of since I was one of the very few people in the early days and it grew and grew, anybody who had anything to do with cybersecurity knew I knew something about cybersecurity. So I had a lot of influence without authority because sort of everybody knew I did it. And then I retired. I want to be a consultant and talk to other people. And I said, well, how do you know anything? I'm like, well, don't you know I'm the world expert and all this stuff? And they're like, no, we don't because we didn't work there. We don't know you. And so I had to go and get these funny letters after my name and, you know, study which cert was better. And at the time I thought, and probably still is, the CISSP and CSSLP and CCK are all letters I have to have after my name. So other people can look at it and say, hey, he at least took these tests that are fairly hard and meant he had to know this stuff to, to pass that test. So we can give a certain amount of 
credibility to what he knows because he's got these funny letters after his name. There's there's different ways to get it, but it, it usually involves interaction and experience with, with the other people and just doing what's right will get recognized and get you that influence. How about those the, the hybrid role that you had on that kind of player coach? I mean, if you were designing an organization, would you design it to have some of those roles to to kind of try people out in the management role? If I could afford to, yes. I guess one other piece of career advice I'd give is, is um, and some of this, like a lot of things just revolves around luck or whatever, would be to have a good life partner. I mean, my wife and I got married, you know, a week after we graduated college. You know, I was an electrical engineer. She's a chemical engineer. We went to work for different companies. We had very different experiences. However, we did a lot of bedroom benchmarking. We did a lot of talking of, you know, how, how are things at your company versus how are things at mine? They she also rose up the management rank much higher than me, actually. She, she was a senior executive at ExxonMobil. Her um, career path was they actually sort of gave you a trial position to the, the equivalent of what you guys call a player coach was you didn't actually get promoted. You just got the job and you got it for six months with the understanding that they'd take it away in six months. It was just part of career paths. And then later on, some of the people who got that would get it permanently and some wouldn't. Okay. You know, some never got it. Some got it and went back and never went up again. And some went up and kept going. Almost like an internal internship. It really was like that. And again, I thought that was a good, I mean, I thought our program was good. I actually thought her program was good. They, they both worked because they both, they both acknowledged the concept of maybe that isn't going to work out. Okay. That the person has sort of an out to go back to be an individual contributor. You know, in my case, I did, when I actually retired, I was an individual contributor. It was my senior most position, but I got promoted up into higher up the technical ladder than I was in the management ladder. Again, because the company did that. A lot of companies, not as many companies have, you know, I'll say equal ladders um, up to the senior positions. You got to be big enough, first of all, to do that. But many do. I really enjoyed that too. I really enjoyed going back to being an individual contributor because again, I'd already established my reputation. I had, I could be quite influential without any authority. And again, I was, I was at a senior technical level. So I had a certain amount of gravitas or whatever, just due to my title, but also because everybody sort of knew that I knew it. Um, so that allowed me to sort of dabble where, and I had to be part of the job description was to be broad. So I had to dabble across a lot of areas, which I really enjoyed doing. Um, and I felt I could, you know, contribute in those areas. And they obviously thought I could too, because they gave me more money and kept me doing it. I'm curious if I have a bias around this, Duncan, when you are in management and go back to individual contributor, are there questions that get asked? Like, why are you doing this? This doesn't seem logical. You know, is this really right for you? Why are you applying for this job? So in many companies, I don't even say most companies, um, and it was true in where I worked too, the management ladder had more rungs and went higher than the technical ladder did. There's only one CEO, okay? And it's not a tech ladder position, <laughs> okay? That's true in any company. So that sort of brings the connotation of what you said. But again, it depends on what you're trying to do. I, mean, I had a very successful career. I, I got paid so much more than I ever expected to get paid that it's, you know, not even silly. And again, like I mentioned, because I have a wife and she was very successful with his bedroom benchmarking stuff, I feel I helped make her successful just like she helped me be successful. So you know, I have no complaints at all about money, but you know, some people want even more. And if you want that, then yeah, maybe the management, you know, you want to be Bill Gates. Again, only one LeBron James or care who you want to pick for your your pinnacle sports player or who you want to pick for your, you know, pinnacle billionaire CEO. But most people aren't going to be that. 
if you really want to be that, then there are certain things you're going to have to do. And I'm not the one to advise you to do it because obviously that is the path I chose. I went as high as I, I'll say I went higher than I needed to go. Like I said, my objective was to have fun, enjoy what I was doing. Did I always enjoy all my jobs? No. But usually when I didn't, I just either, you know, stuck it out till a job changed because the world does change a lot or changed myself to literally just change jobs. I happen to be fortunate that in the big company I was in, I could usually change within my company and, and still, you know, stay employed by the same company. But I had many different jobs in many different organizations. My wife got transferred several times and I just found other jobs in AT&T. I got involved in the in a lot of the federal workspace stuff. Well, I got I had a clearance. That's a story in its own self. One, pe- be open to when management comes to you with, we'd like you to do something. Be very conscious if you're going to say no. Having been manager saying that to people, I know that sometimes I'm the manager, I'm going to remember that, hey, they didn't want to help me out. I thought this would help their career. They don't think it's going to. Well, that's their choice. But hey, I'm not going to help it anymore. I had a manager come to me and say, I think you should have a, a security clearance and work on this stuff. And I'm like, oh, the whole reason I came to Bell Labs was stuck in a security clearance. And he made a very telling argument. He said, okay, do you know people, you know, friends that are in the military, your friends that are working with clearances and stuff? Uh, and I said, yeah. And he goes, well, think about them, okay? And think about ones that you, the reason you don't want to have one. And I said, okay. And I pictured both some college and, and high school friends that I knew and sort of made it out mad of the of the worst case of all of them and said, yeah, that's why I don't want to have one. They said, now, do you want those people being the only people that know these secrets and are controlling the thing? I was like, oh, wow. I actually thought about that. And that is the reason I got a clearance. Him telling me that is, I went back, thought hard about it and said, no, I want to have a say. And they can't have a say if you're not in the room. You can't be in the room if you don't have a clearance. So I went ahead and got the clearance. I'm actually really glad I did. It, it helped my career. But when my uh, wife got transferred from uh, New Jersey to Virginia or got the opportunity to be transferred in a promotion with it, I'd had the clearance and I knew some people in the in the federal workspace within AT&T and said, hey, I'm already doing this stuff for you. Do you mind if I come down and you know do it out of your organization and do it, basically come to work for you instead of where I was, they said, sure, we can, we can make that work. And, uh, and again, it ended up being a boost to my career. So I did it following my wife, but it was very rewarding for the work that I did. I got to actually run a, a business unit for a while, um, a very small one because I wasn't that senior a person, but because I was literally one of very few people that, that knew about it, I got to literally run. I had to be the contracting officer because I couldn't get the contracting officer cleared. So I had to actually do the contract stuff. I got to run my own little, you know, P&L and I got to actually meet with the chairman of board of the AT&T once a year because it was a, happened to be a really important program that we had to brief him on every so often and uh, got through several chairmans that way, actually, uh, through that period. So that was, again, somewhat lucky, but some of it is you make your own luck. I chose to go find that job because I had the opportunity and it looked, and again, I knew something about the organization because I was you know, doing support work for them already. You know, it was sort of a part-time job for me that got me the clearance because I had certain expertise to, to consult with them on. So I was sort of a consultant and I went to doing it full-time and it was, it was a very good career move. Early to mid-90s, um, a friend of mine from earlier in the labs had, he'd made a career move because he got married, decided being a Bell Labs nerd, they researched, where do we want to grow our kids to grow up? They picked Seattle. So they literally said, okay, let's find jobs in Seattle. He went to work for this little, you know, small company, had a hundred or so people in it called Microsoft at the time. 
called back to me and said, Hey, do you want to, I think you'd be great at this company. You want to come out here and, and join us? And I said, no, I'm just, I'm having too good a time enjoying, you know, what I'm doing. Well, my friend now, you know, his foundation donates more per year than I've made in my career. I chose not to do that. Now, again, if I would have known Microsoft was going to take off like it did, why I have changed my mind? I don't think I would have. I, I actually really enjoyed what I was doing. I think the world is actually a safer place because of what I was doing. And like I said, uh, my objective is to enjoy it. Could I have made more money? Yeah. I could have, you know, bopped around more. I could have done other things, but I still made a lot of money. I can't complain. It sounds like you're looking back and saying it's really important which things you're saying yes to. Yeah. Because you're making choices, you know, somebody said, hey, I think you should get a clearance. I think it can help you, you know, think about these other things. Maybe the same reason that I I don't try to duck my jury duty, right? Exactly. And it it took you, you know, in a specific path. Now, you also made, you know, some decisions about what to say no to. It's like, should I pull the eject cord on this and and go work for a tech startup? Um, You know, that was probably always an option, right? And maybe... People thought of you to do that a couple different times. <laughs> you know, not all of them were from Microsoft, right? Right. And there were there were move choices we had to make either due to opportunities for me or opportunities for my wife that looked at jointly. We said either for one of her reasons or one of my reasons, we said, no, that one's just not for us. If our objective was to make the most money we could ever make, we would have probably made some of those differently. But we're happy, very happy with the ones we made. I'd much rather be happy at a well-paying job than unhappy at a, you know, super rich job. Again, I happen to be fortunate enough that we make enough. I can, you know, it's not like I'm living hand to mouth and I'm not going to eat food if I, you know, make the wrong one of these choices. All of these are among well-paying jobs. People maybe don't understand how expensive therapy can be. Working for an extended period of time in a super high-stress job or something that you absolutely hate what it is that you're doing. I mean, you are really asking for a lot of stress and a lot of, you know, eventual breakdown. Like I'm not saying, you know, nervous breakdown, although it could lead to that, but uh, that happens too. Yeah. It affects your health overall. It does. Absolutely. Absolutely can have a physical impact on, on the individual. And again, there are going to be periods in your career where you're going to have a certain amount of angst and you're going to just not, not be happy, but they shouldn't be too long. And they should have an end in sight and an objective. And if not, then you should be, you know, getting out the what color is my parachute book or whatever and and deciding. Right. There's a, it sounds like you've made the judgment a couple of times. Hey, this is short term. It doesn't seem to be like the entire organization has decided that, you know, high stress is, is the new rule forever. You know, maybe there's some crunch times, maybe there's roles that are less interesting, but over the past, you know, X years, it's been obvious that, you know, things change and, you know, toughing this out for, you know, a year, even a few years is, is long-term probably the best thing. Yeah. And, and don't confuse uh, working hard with being unhappy. I did put in the hours, so to speak, um, usually because I liked what I was doing. I'm retired and I'm still doing this. I'm doing a lot of it for free. It's because I, like it. Okay. But when I was getting paid for it, I was doing, you know, I was working, I I was not working 40 hour weeks. I was working much more than 40 hour weeks. It's one of the things I liked about retirement is I could cut it back to 40 hour weeks of, you know, just a few paid hours and the rest volunteer and still have gobs of time. So it's not like you can coast. You you do have to, you got to provide the value. 
however you provide the value. Some people can provide the value in a very short amount of time. Some people have to really slug at it to provide the value. Most people are, it's, it's, it's a combination of both. It's, it's such a, a, a fascinating thing for, for me to think about. Like, uh, I'm just reflecting on a bunch of the things that you said, my life and, you know, is an exact model for it. And, uh, I hope a lot of people are, are getting that same reaction. Even just that, that observation, you know, working hard isn't necessarily the same thing as having a bad time. If you enjoy it, it's not working. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it can be exhausting, it can be draining, and you can still right. love every minute of it. Yeah. And you could be in a situation where you're not actually working that hard, but also hating every minute of it. So not equating, you know, effort or even required effort or requested effort with good or bad, right? That you can enjoy or not enjoy on a separate dimension from how hard you're being asked or required to work. Yeah. And the, and the enjoyment can come in different ways too. It, you actually, you know, like the doing of what you're doing, or sometimes that you like the end result of what you're doing. Uh, a lot of the government work I did, I honestly feel the world is a safer place from that. I'm very proud of that. That makes me, me feel very good. Some of it wasn't always fun. I mean, not every hour was fun, so to speak, but the, the result was good. That job had, or some parts of that job had a certain, I'll call it on-call aspect to it. It's, you know, when they needed you, they needed you. So, that sometimes made it rough. But again, it was literally saving lives at times that you just walked away feeling very good from, that it was worth it after the fact. Interesting point there too is process and outcomes. Some things are really enjoyable because the process is enjoyable. Some things are really enjoyable because the outcomes are really enjoyable and you walk exactly. away at that outcome feeling great. And I think both things can be okay. Yeah. And the ideal world would be both. The case you want to avoid is the neither. Let's go back to the hard work and enjoyment and the intersection of those two, because sometimes that happens when you're learning something new. We didn't ask about the cybersecurity origin story, so I want to hear how that spark got ignited and then some of the nuances that go with it in working with those organizations like threat intelligence and law enforcement. So I got the clearance due to my certain knowledge of certain digital processing stuff. Moved to Washington as part of a career move with my wife. So I career moved at the same time, got involved in a, an organization, at t called Special Projects, um, that did special projects, had, had some really neat people that worked for me. Divert a little bit and then get back to your question. One of the really interesting things was up until that point in my career, I'd worked at Bell Labs, the pinnacle of research and development, cream of the crop, top of the class, all, you know, from top institutions. And they're all engineering techie kind of people, all technology-based people. And I went to work in the uh, special projects here, which had a lot of people that were just had high school degrees and went to work as, you know, techs in the telephone company and worked their way up the ladder through a very different career path than I had. And were the same level as me or some higher, some lower, sort of all combinations and um, was a very different perspective on life. And was a very eye-opening, broadening experience for me. I'm still very good friends with many of them, actually. And uh, I have friends from every stage of my career. I was going to say, but many more or less so than elsewhere. No, but it was it was interesting. So, so just as a, as a side, there some career choices give you some breadth that just you know open your eyes and let you be a better person, particularly a better manager, because you appreciate other perspectives more. My wife's career took a similar a similar turn um, because she was 
She ended up being a senior executive, sort of her path along the way. They stuck her off in, in various parts of the company. And she had like people who literally drove tanker trucks and the people who piloted the, uh, the tanker ships for a quarter of the US reported her for a while. Again, she has a chemical engineer with an R&D background like me. And she had, you know, truck drivers report to her. Again, a very different than what you're used to. And you learn a lot from it because it's different than what you're used to back to your um, original um, point. But so how I got involved in cybersecurity was I, I had these clearances of working in the federal government, supporting these, you know, special government projects, White House, the White House Communications Agency, comms for the FBI, for uh, NSA and some others, and some more, more than comms can't get into programs. So I had the right clearances. I had, you know, certain technical knowledge. I was a hacker without realizing I was a hacker uh, and it got noticed. We talked before about sometimes people notice stuff and you don't realize they notice it. So before the thing I'm about to say, a person who worked for me that I was not allowed to know where she worked. I had very high level of full lifestyle polygraph clearances. I had the clearance level to know. I did not have a need to know where she worked. And, uh, they had some early on um, computers that they weren't allowed to call them computers back then because I think there was a consent degree that AT&T wasn't allowed to make computers. It was only allowed to make, so we called them processors. But anyway, the things that basically ran the, the PBXs, and the, the telephone switches, and they needed to have some work done on it. And it was a very highly classified thing. But, you know, the building still needed comms. It was, it was actually a covert operation. They wanted to know if they could bring in an uncleared tech to repair the computer. And, um, you know, I'd played around with Linux and knew a fair amount about it and happened to knew that the operating system of the 3B2 computer that ran the PBX was a Linux system. And I said, well, tell you what, I have the clearances. I don't need to know anything, but I have the clearances. Let me at it for an hour and I'll tell you what I can find out. And I'm not even that great a system administrator, but I'll, I know a little bit about system administration. Let, let me in there for an hour, uh, and not in the actual live system in a test system that was set up with the live system uh, stuff in it. And I'll tell you what I could figure out. And then you'll you'll know what somebody without a clearance could have figured out. I, I figured out the entire program where it was. It was a really sensitive program. And I had to get right into it because I'd figured it out. And no, they did not let the sysadmin tech, uncleared sysadmin tech into the, into the classified system to do that. It turns out that was my first experience being a hacker without realizing I was being a hacker, but it got noticed. So uh, not too long later, the Gulf War broke out, the first Gulf War in 1990. Desert Shield started up. Desert Storm was in early 1991. And in the fall of 1990, they said, Duncan, you got clearances. You know certain stuff. Uh, We're going to ship you down to this thing called the Air Force Information Warfare Center. I had literally never heard those words, information and warfare, in the same sentence before. Okay, this is 1990. This is this is 4.8 kilobit modems. Are we're just making the standards? I was involved in making the standards to upgrade them to 9.6 kilobit modems, and that was a really big deal. This is not the internet as you know it. This is way before all that. And the Air Force had people being hackers and and hacking into other things. And uh, I went down to San Antonio, Texas, and um, Got my eyes opened up very wide on on things that you could do. I was part of an attack team uh, in the first Gulf War attacking the Iraqi air defenses um, so that our bombers wouldn't get shot down. And we did that by trying to get into their systems. The rules back then were really strict. We were under the same rules as the boots on the ground people. So we weren't allowed to even start doing reconnaissance until the, the planes took off. So 
we weren't very good at it, but we were practicing on the dead systems and we were very good at that. So if they, we would have had a little bit more time, we, we would have done better than we did. But I went back to AT&T and said, hey, um, I learned how to do some stuff that I still know how to do. And it turns out I could do it to our network as easy as I could do it to their network. Uh, we really should worry about this. Literally, the word cybersecurity hadn't been invented yet. In fact, there were, the thing was called information assurance back then or something. Um, so I was on the very ground floor of creating the chief security office of AT&T with, with the guy who I mentioned before, who I was, they were my protege, and he ended up being my boss and the first chief security officer of AT&T and the second ever chief security officer or CISO. And I was you know, AT&T's chief architect and eventually grew to be a 2000 person organization. But it was because I just had the right clearance and they sent me to the right place. And the government was doing that particular, you know, all back in 1990, all this stuff was classified out the kazoo that you could even do something like cyber attacks. It was literally classified. The classification level was written that if there was any vulnerabilities known in any government computer systems, it's classified at least secret. So the equivalent of a CVE coming out today, you know, vulnerability being published on a Microsoft Windows computer, just saying you had a Microsoft computer and it had the CV in it was classified secret back then. Because again, that in this equities issue, they, the sort of offense always won back then. Offense still wins a lot. But anyway, that's how I got involved in cybersecurity, went back and you know sort of was in on the ground floor when there were very few of us who knew anything. And this whole Think Evilly stuff, I just happened to do fairly well. I just saw all sorts of ways to do bad things. And then we stopped people from doing them. And because AT&T back then, approximately 10% of internet traffic in the 90s um, traveled through AT&T's network as we, as we went from being a voice band network to an actual real internet, uh, AT&T was a major player in it. So we saw most of everything. So when we were setting up those early systems, we, we saw all sorts of stuff that nowadays would be old hat, but back then was like never been seen before. One of my other patents is on how to detect DDoS attacks because we were seeing them and we could see them because we could see the spikes in the traffic. And if you did the math a certain way, you can make the spikes sort of pop. And that's what one of my patents is on. was one of the guys who's still one of the senior people over at uh, in AT&T's office nowadays. Some of that's just luck because it was a new field that I was there. But you know what? There's going to be other new fields created in the next decade. So just be at the right place and be willing to learn stuff and and recognize the opportunities, the sort of innovation we were talking about before. Innovation is easiest in in brand new fields. So be involved in the brand new stuff if you can if you can, you know, spare the time to learn something about it. So the, the upcoming ones will be, you know, uh, in, in cybersecurity, it'll be automation. We just need to get way more automated than we are. But beyond cybersecurity, it'll be AI and quantum and lots of other things like that. Some buzzword that I don't know yet that will be next year's top topic. Another pattern we've seen is to kind of educate yourself about the technology waves that are that are coming up and, and, and pick one that, that you enjoy and, and try to ride it. Right. And, and, try and, and try and time it right, too. Things are going to follow the hype curve. You, you want to be not following the hype curve. You want to be ahead of it as on its way up, and you also want to be ahead of it on its way down. So I would actually say the optimal point to be is when everyone else is on the, on the plateau down, you're on the, sorry, the slope down, it goes up, goes down, comes back up on plateaus. You want to be on the plateau when everyone else is still on the down. That was my sweet spot, my career. I was usually that. 
I was in the early days of cloud, you know, people were, were very anti-cloud from a security viewpoint. And I'm like, no, it's going to save us so much money. We can put some of that money into security, still save money. We have a common place to do everything and it'll actually be better. So when most of the world was down on cloud, I was, I was on it. But when, when it was on the early part of the hype curve, I was already on the down curve. Hey, you're overhyping it to begin with, you know, so you, you want, you want to be ahead of that curve if at all possible. Gotcha. You're saying, uh, go through the curve before everybody else yeah recognize it will be a curve and and they won't mm-hmm. all be at the same time like you know ai is finally making it to there but i have actually been literally hearing that for at least 20 years right i think it finally is mm-hmm. but um you, you got to be a little careful when they're when you're still on the upslope there to to predict when it really will come down and go up and usually you can do usually you can do that by just learning a little bit about it and looking at it from the perspective of what are the problems it's trying to solve and what's it mean to you. And if you really like this stuff, you'll get into it enough to figure all that out. And if you don't like it, you probably should find a different one. There's going to be enough of them. You know, I, didn't, I guess I didn't mention IoT. That'll be another one that the world is going to be a very different place ten years from now because IoT. I think quantum's further out. Quantum could be around the corner for the next twenty years. Yes. What quantum is today is what AI was 20 years ago. I agree with that. And it might not be 20. It might only be 15, but whatever. It's not going to be next right. year. And I could be wrong. Well, market timing, that, that's always the, the problem, right? You, in retrospect, you know, are you good or are you lucky? I have a whole lot of bromides and sort of sayings that people are sick of me saying, but one of them is follow the money. Okay. And, and in follow the money, you got to be careful of which money you're following in the case of following the hype curve. Because the venture capitalists are all on that upslope thing. They're, they're not for the long run. So just because lots of money is pouring into something, you know, remember they're pouring lots of money in because lots of them are going to fail. A few of them, you know, a few of them will be the Microsofts or the Googles, but a thousand of them won't be. And, and that's is true, not just of the company names, but of the, of the technologies. But I do think in general, the follow the money is a good thing. If you, if you're, if you're looking at the, what is, you know, the big picture of whatever you're doing of the value to the, to whatever, whoever you're working for, almost anything can be turned into money. Even cybersecurity, I think we don't do that often enough. I'm a huge proponent of, there's a book by Hubbard and Searson on uh, how to measure anything in cybersecurity risk. And you basically can turn everything into monetary risk. I mean, maybe you turn it into deaths and casualties as in, in certain cases, but for the most part, you, you can turn it into money and that's what you should be making your business decisions on. If you if you can speak that language, and again, you don't have to speak it in gory detail, you have to speak it at that sort of able to tell a story I was just telling, then you'll be successful in what you're in whoever you're trying to convince to do whatever because you're you're leading them in the right direction. You're doing what's right for your organization by following the money. People hate buying insurance. Right. Yes, but they shouldn't. Okay. I have great hopes for the insurance industry and cybersecurity. They, they might be unfounded and they're probably prejudiced by my upbringing. Uh, my father was a safety engineer for an insurance company. He's a co-author of the paper of why we have seatbelts. They invented something called the uh, survival car two and do two of them because survival car one didn't work out as well because it was a special car and the manufacturers all said, hey, that's a special car. It's never going to make it. So they said, all right. And they took the four top selling models at the time and they made what they called survival cars out of them. They put in things like seatbelts and anti-lock brakes and things like they smoothed the corners on um, on the edges and they uh, had tinted glass. And there's all sorts, of, all sorts of safety features that I didn't even realize were safety features. And they proved statistically 
that as a country, we'd be better off if we did these things. And they convinced the regulators to, to put those things in. And it, and, it, and it came about because it was for the common good, the right thing to do. And, you know, the car manufacturers, no car manufacturer would do it on their own because it'd make their costs go up. And everyone else's costs would stay low and no one would buy, no one would buy it for that feature. But if the government says you got to do it, then there'd be less traffic deaths and your insurance companies would make more money, which is the whole reason the insurance companies were doing it. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that same model will, will, will eventually take place in cybersecurity. The problem is we got to get smart enough. It, you know, cars were around for, this was like 1960, Ford was 1904. So cars were around for 55 years before they sort of figured out how to do this. The cybersecurity industry isn't quite that old yet although we're hemorrhaging enough money that hopefully the money is going to start getting people to be smarter. Follow the money, but know how to create the business case exactly. to get what you want. Well, and, and that will be because you're following the money. Right. And to follow the money, you must be able to speak the language of it. And in creating the business case, you're demonstrating that you can. You're saying language triggered it. One of my other bromides people are sick of me saying is because I was in the cybersecurity organization for, for most of my career. And that's what I you know consult in now is the cobbler's children should not go barefoot. Some of the worst security things occur in security. Like you're selling widget X to meet function Y, but you're not, you know, making S bombs and doing all the other things you should be doing for security. Um, which is just again, that's why I always say that saying. It's just dot all your I's and cross all your T's. If you're selling a security widget, it should be secure. Because I will say wearing my hacker hat, that's the first thing I go for. What, I, what again, I learned from the first Gulf War, what is the first thing the Air Force takes out in any attack? It's the enemy radar. Okay, they take out the radar even before they take out the guns. It's the first thing a cyber attacker should go after, the cybersecurity stuff. A communications disruption can mean only one thing, invasion. Well, no, again, CIA, you know, cybersecurity, CIA, you're assuming they're going after availability. I go after integrity. I don't want you to know that I'm in it. I, I want I want the radar to be working perfectly. It just doesn't show my planes. Because you take the radar out, then the guy goes, we're under attack. Radar looks like it's working perfectly. It's even seeing the bad guy planes. It's not seeing the good guy planes. Duncan, I, I really want to thank you for your time. I've gotten so much out of this conversation. And I hope our listeners have too. It's Well, I like talking, so this has been fun. And happy to talk at length on any of this stuff to anybody willing to listen to me. Duncan. Thanks again so much for your time, you. and uh, we will hopefully uh, uh, have you back over and over again to to talk about brand new things. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. And like I said, I like to do fun things. Before we start reflecting on this episode with Duncan, I want to give a special shout out to our listeners in Poland. Thank you for putting us in the top 250 on Apple podcast charts in the business and careers category. And if you think we should be on the charts in other countries, please continue to share these episodes that are helpful to you with a friend, rate us and review us. In this second part of the discussion with Duncan, he talked a lot about influencing other people without authority. He told us this had to do with knowing what you're talking about and not being a jerk. It was very interesting to me the way he spoke about people inside his company knowing his reputation and level of expertise compared to those outside his company 
understanding his level of expertise in a specific area. When he started his consulting business, people did not know he had the expertise he did as his co-workers had known, so he had to establish the evidence of expertise. Remember, we need to establish that expertise when we seek to do something new. Maybe it's a certification like Duncan did. Maybe it's some public proof of work for you. Maybe there's something that you've written about, something you contributed to on GitHub. Maybe you've given a talk somewhere that you can reference on your LinkedIn profile or you're blogging about something or you participated in some special review committee for conference talks. All of those things are items that you can put on your LinkedIn profile and communicate as evidence of expertise in a specific area. So be sure not to leave those out because all of us probably have more expertise in specific areas than we give ourselves credit for. And when we have expertise and other people we're speaking with understand that, we gain influence in those discussions. You know, if you talk to me about a problem with your car, I better know something about cars and be able to establish that I know something or you're not going to listen to anything I say. And you probably shouldn't because I don't know that much about cars. Did you hear what Duncan said about the bedroom benchmarking exercise? He and his wife talked through how their careers were going, how their businesses were going, and they made decisions on career moves together. In different times in their lives, one of them might have needed to relocate for work and the other would find a new role within their company at that time. So hopefully you have someone in your life, maybe it's a trusted friend, a trusted family member, that you can really go to and talk through some career move decisions. Maybe it's changing jobs specifically to do something different. Maybe it's relocating for the same company and doing the same thing and weighing those pros and cons. In Duncan's case, they decided that he didn't need to make the move to Microsoft in the early days when someone encouraged him to. And even looking back, he's okay with that. Of course, he had no way of knowing it was going to blow up like it did and become so popular. But at the time, it wasn't the right decision for him and his family. If your manager suggested you go and get a security clearance, would you do it? At first, Duncan was hesitant. You heard the story. I really like and appreciate that story. I think the manager did a really good job of making Duncan really think about his reasons for not getting it. And Duncan admitted that was one of the best things he did for his career because it led to so many other opportunities. Working in that chief security office that got created inside of AT&T, being a part of the Air Force Information Warfare Center and all the things he learned there. He wouldn't have been able to do all those things if he hadn't worked toward getting that clearance. Maybe there's some new skill or certification or something you're getting encouraged to do by your manager. There's probably a good reason for it. And we should certainly be open to at least considering those if they're brought to us. Because if someone brings it to you, just like Dr. Sharisha Kuchimanchi told us in episode 246, if someone brings you an opportunity or recommends you for a specific role, that means they think highly of you and they know your reputation and they believe you can do it and probably have your back. It's okay to say no to those things, but she, Sharisha, would encourage us to say no for the right reasons. And of course, if you say no too many times, your boss may stop suggesting things. 
So it's a fine balance. But before you say no, really think about it. I think we see another great example in this episode of using relatable experience. Duncan was told that he would go to the Air Force Information Warfare Center, and he gained a lot of skills during that time being part of an attack team. But he took the knowledge that he gained, and he applied those skills within AT&T to make the company better, to make the company more secure. Being part of the attack team exposed him to the attack methodologies to break into systems, And by getting that exposure, it helped him think more about the types of attacks that might be coming at AT AT&T systems. Sometimes we need this exposure to a new area to be able to expand our minds and think differently. And we can bring that back to somewhere else, bring that learning and apply it in a different way. It might have turned out very different if he had just gone and done that and decided... He couldn't do anything with those skills, but he took something he had learned and he chose to apply it in a different area to provide value and provide value it did. Hopefully you're doing the same thing and thinking of ways you could use the things you learn in other areas as you learn them. I liked the discussion of working hard versus being unhappy and not confusing those two. Have you ever worked really hard at something and loved every minute of it? I know for me, I can tell you I got to take two weeks earlier this year inside VMware to work on a totally different team, to work with an innovation team. It was absolutely incredible to be able to do that and work with totally different folks for two straight weeks. And I know I probably worked 12 to 14 hour days every single day, but it didn't wear me out. I had the energy to keep going. I worked hard at it and I loved it. I would say that we should pay attention to the energy we get from the work that we do. Is the work that you're doing bringing you energy or is it taking away your energy? Likely everything you do will not bring you energy. But if you get to the point where you feel like and are mindful of most of the things you're doing are taking energy from you, maybe it's time to seek to do something else if that's an option. Or take on a new project in your current role, if you can, to spice things up. But the only way you're going to get that knowledge of what energizes you and what doesn't is to be mindful of it and really pay attention and reflect on it. Maybe you journal about it. Maybe you jot down some things every day, every week. But you need to be paying attention to that in order to holistically understand whether overall the work you're doing, even though maybe... You're not working 14 hours a day or 12 hours a day or even 10 hours a day. Maybe it's completely draining. What specific elements are draining or is it everything? Try and figure that out for yourself. Well, I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Duncan. He shed a lot of light of what it was like to get into cybersecurity at a different time than some of our other guests maybe got into that field. If you're looking for more stories of people who have gone into cybersecurity and want to hear more, we'll put the link in the show notes, all the other episodes of people whose background went through cybersecurity in some way, shape, or form. I hope everybody listening can retire one day and still be able to do the work you love and enjoy like Duncan. We'll see you next time. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. 
We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at BJourneyman. For Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore. Signing off. Adios. Adios.